Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the paediatric medical education podcast. I'm your host Ian Lewins and I'm delighted to bring you this extra special guest podcast this week discussing the COVID vaccine and it's brought to you by Drs Damien Rowland and Ali Munro. Hello there, my name is Damien Rowland. I'm a paediatric emergency medicine consultant at the Leicester Royal Infirmary and I'm chatting to Alastair Munro. Do you want to introduce yourself, Ali? Yeah, hi. Uh, so I'm Ali Munro. I'm a paediatric um, uh, clinical research fellow in infectious diseases at uh, Southampton and uh, I spend a lot of my time now doing uh, COVID vaccine trials and some research about COVID in children as well as moonlighting in the paediatric emergency department and uh, contribute to, to Don't Forget the Bubbles, which is how you and I became so embroiled, Damien. Yes, and it, it's lovely to hear that you can, you're enjoying moonlighting in the children's emergency care world. Because if, if, if you're going to moonlight anywhere, that would be the place where I think people should moonlight. Absolutely. <laughs> so we're chatting today, uh, clearly as, as paediatricians, but we're, we're involving this I suppose podcast for anyone in, in the medical profession really and we'll either get questions from patients but probably more importantly from family and friends about the, the the COVID vaccines. So I just wanted to really cover some of what is known about them um, and we'll try and move through this in a way that is understandable to a, a lay member of the public. And I suppose the, the first big thing is is a lot of these vaccinations are known by the the name of the company who's creating them, rather than the what the actual vaccine does or how it works. So, do you, do you do you want to just take us through the different types of vaccines against COVID that have been created? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's loads of them. There's absolutely loads already. It's quite remarkable, actually. So, I think at the moment there's uh, roughly sixty different vaccines in clinical trials that are being tried in humans, and there's about another ninety nearly in uh, preclinical studies as well. So um, plenty to choose from, but obviously most people are probably familiar with the front runners who have uh, been making news headlines recently. Um, so we'll just go into, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a vaccine developer myself, so I, I, I can't give you the real uh, detailed nitty gritty of the science, but we can sort of give a quick, um, you know, umbrella overview of the different technologies that are, that are being used at the moment. So uh, the one that, uh, people are talking about a lot at the moment is the uh, the the Pfizer vaccine, and this one is what's called an mRNA vaccine, and this is similar to one of the other front runners, which is the Moderna vaccine. And so these use messenger RNA to code for an antigen. So just to remind everyone, the way that a vaccine works is obviously it's trying to show your body a piece of either a virus or bacteria um, that we call an antigen, which is normally a protein. Show it a piece of um, these bad guys so that it develops antibodies already and so you have some pre-existing acquired immunity when you meet you know the virus or the bacteria in real life so you're very quickly able to ramp up massive production of of antibodies in uh, your um, you know memory cells and that immune side of your immune system to help you clear infection so all of these vaccines um, are just different ways of trying to show your body um, bits of the virus. So we're obviously talking about the SARS-CoV-2 virus that it needs to recognize. So mRNA is using messenger RNA, which is like the recipe for a protein that is then injected into muscles in your body. And your muscle cells use that code 
to produce the antigen itself. So the antigen is not in the vaccine, but the recipe for it is in messenger RNA. And then uh, I think that's that's quite an important kind of point, isn't it? So a lot of people, I think, have got confused by one, they just have never heard of mRNA before. And the, the closest thing to that is DNA. And then they assume that the DNA of the virus is being injected into you. But that's not actually the case, is it? No, it's not the case at all. Uh, and uh, so there are so there's mRNA vaccines. There are actually DNA vaccines as well. So DNA is like one step removed. So in terms of what would normally happen within your cells is you have DNA and uh, DNA is like the original recipe. And then that's coded into mRNA. And it's from the mRNA that the, that proteins are made within your body. So there's sort of two different uh, messengers that you can you can um, inject into yourself to the code for the protein without directly giving you the protein. And mRNA is the one that's in the front runners. And it's fascinating technology because it's never been uh, used in a licensed vaccine before. So there have been other clinical trials um, for other types of vaccines, but this is will, will likely be the first ever fully licensed vaccine that uses mRNA technology. And it can be made very quickly. I think Moder the Moderna vaccine was produced within two days of the full uh, genome of the virus being released, which is astounding, really astounding. So we've got... Um, I presume that means that they were just waiting... The, the tech, it, a lot of people have been scared about the, the pace of this technology becoming available and getting the vaccine to market. But part of that is because these companies are actually quite geared up to do this through their other product lines and the fact that they know what's going to happen. And all they really needed with the mRNA... The, 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 uh, that's the only new part of the technology. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And it helps that we have some pre-existing knowledge about this type of virus. So we know about coronaviruses and we know about um, sort of spike proteins and that being one of the primary antigens. So once you've got the code for that, um, you know, a lot of these companies have the technology to very quickly be able to produce mRNA that will code for that antigen. Um, and so that's how they were able to do it quickly. Um, and that's the, you know, the mRNA uh, and DNA vaccines. But this also applied to some other technologies. So one of the other um, famous uh, vaccine technologies that are being used at the moment include uh, use in the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And that's what we call um, virus vectored vaccines. And what this does is takes another virus, which is either uh, harmless or has been inactivated. Um, so in the case of the Oxford one, it's a chimpanzee adenovirus, so like that would cause a common cold in chimps. Um, and that virus is genetically modified to either um, produce the same antigen on its own surface or to contain the genetic material for for that protein so that your body makes it. And so, for example, um, you know, Oxford have a long history of making these uh, adenovirus vector vaccines, and they'd made a similar one against MERS previously. So a lot of the technology was sitting around and already in use, and that was why it was so rapidly be able to be um, deployed for these things. Um, so we've got the mRNA DNA vaccines, we've got viral vector vaccines, then we've got something called um, whole virus vaccines, which or inactivated virus, which is where you actually take SARS-CoV-2 and you either, you know, smash it up or mutate it a bit or, you know, give it some radiation or whatever to basically make it far, far less virulent or harmful, but it obviously contains all of the bits that your body needs to still recognize it. And then the final fourth type is what we call protein ones, which is where you actually just you give a dose of the antigen. So, you know, in this case, it's normally the spike protein uh, and that can come with packages of other um, proteins or, or uh, adjuvants to help elicit a stronger immune uh, response. 
Um, so yeah, it's those are the, those are the four types. Just because the, the ones that that have have got to market quickest, which which appear to be the mRNA and the um, Oxford uh, AstraZeneca kind of uh, type uh, approaches, are the ones that are actually furthest away from the the, the COVID molecule itself. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, although so uh, those are the ones that are in the West, but I think the the one that ha- was um, used in that was deployed in China first was a whole cell inactivated one. Um, so I think the the one that the Chinese have been using for their military is. Uh, and do we is know anything those. about the the impact of that vaccine yet? I haven't seen any data. No, so I'm not entirely sure. No. Okay, so it's clearly something to to look out for. So we we have different types of vaccines which have been developed that there have been questions and concerns about the speed by which these have been brought out now i'm not an expert on the mrha but i've certainly been involved in enough studies and especially some kind of clinical trials that have been needed in children to license some products to know that they're they're a pretty well-governed bureaucratic organization and they're not going to let things through the net pretty quickly from my experience um, and so that the weights and measures to all these vaccines I presume are have come through so quickly because everything else has been put on hold for all the time to go into processing the application rather than the fact that they're taking shortcuts. Yeah absolutely um, and you and I Damien who have been you know, have been involved in clinical trials, both know that the cogs turn slowly in those systems there. You know, once you, you, you have got absolutely reams of paperwork to fill out that needs lots of different people, very, very busy people involved to complete, you submit it, you wait for months, you revise it, you wait for months, you need to set up, you know, huge databases and start advertising and all that and go through ethics, all this other stuff. It takes such the, the bureaucracy is massive, and a lot of that is for you know is for good reason, but it's just a very slow moving machine. The difference this time has been that everyone has stopped everything else to do this as quickly as possible, and people have poured huge sums of money into ensuring that teams have the resources uh, to be able to go and get it done quickly. So, having been involved in the the Oxford vaccine trial, I I mean, it was like a runaway train. It came so fast. It was so big. It was absolutely astonishing. And the amount of um, time and effort people had to put into getting it up, getting it going, getting patients in and vaccinated and followed up was absolutely uh, astonishing. Um, and a lot of it is just because, you know, uh, people have removed a lot of the barriers that are so time consuming and stuff has just been expedited. So it's not that any less has happened. It's just what what needs to happen has happened. A lot of it simultaneously and then a lot of it, you know, just incredibly rapidly. So, for example, starting the phase one trial was done, you know, uh, phase one trials were being started the day of or the day after results from, you know, the animal trials being released. Uh, whereas normally, you know, you might start planning it on the day that that happened, whereas they, they were actually getting going. Um, so a lot of that has been what's facilitated the speed. It's not that less has happened. It's just what would normally happen has happened at an absolutely astonishing speed. So and a lot has happened. Can you give us some idea of actually how many people have been part of some of the, these trials? Because it, it, we're talking tens of thousands of people already. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, so um, the I know that the uh, two phase three trials that have finished for the mRNA vaccines both had more than thirty thousand participants each. I think the Oxford trials got twenty thousand, going up to thirty thousand. 
Um, you know, we're enrolling in several other um, trials that are having thousands of thousands of patients. So we're probably talking hundreds of thousands of patients already enrolled in phase three trials. There's thir- I think there's 13 phase three trials on- ongoing. I don't know where they are, they're all at with recruitment, but yeah, I mean, it's it's probably over 100,000 um, uh, at least uh, patients have been enrolled or participants have been enrolled. And so what are the, the, the steps now, having had um, kind of some of the um, the vaccines have, have been approved or come out, more will follow, what will you be particularly looking for over the next six months or so in terms of data for kind of uh, efficacy and, and effectiveness. I know we've had those reported, I suppose, by media statement, but I presume there's more to come um, on actual re- the, the real world as we're seeing it uh, as the vaccines deployed. Yeah, so I guess, well, I mean, that's a big question because there's a lot. So the, first of all, we, it would be really great to see the full published data sets, as you said, from the phase three trials that have um, you know, reported their press releases. Probably the most important details are there, to be fair. So we, we know roughly how many patients have been recruited. We know how many, what we call, you know, events there were, meaning how many people became infected. I'm presuming the NIH have seen all of these. They'll have seen all of this and so much more. I mean, I, I imagine they'll have received hundreds of pages, if not thousands of pages of documents from from all of the studies to to review all of the safety so they'll get all the safety information not just the headlines about serious events but you know all events that have happened and uh, summary reports of all of that sort of stuff so everything that happened in a trial even if it, you know it, we thought it was unrelated they'll be able to review all of that as well um so you know the important safety information we need to see so we we know that um i think the Pfizer vaccine had a, a median of 2 months follow up for uh, its participants so half the participants had had two months follow-up and that's probably the most important time period in terms of the um, possible uh, you know bad side effects or or adverse events that we sometimes see related with vaccines so where there's been cases of uh, autoimmune conditions like uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome or transverse myelitis or uh, there was um, narcolepsy associated with the h1n1 vaccine in children that's those have all occurred predominantly really within two months um, so there's, there's very few uh, you know adverse events that tend to happen after that so it's good that we've got that data but we, we you know we obviously we want to see once once more follow-up has accrued we'll want to be able to see that data as well for safety for for reassurance and I think I suppose it's important to note that we do know that some vaccinations have some side effects, but they have never been frequent enough to just stop using the vaccine completely, or that some of the the outcomes are still under um, kind of debate and examination. Uh, my understanding is, especially for the narcolepsy, that, that, that there's still a lot of ongoing review about actually what the true impact is. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's always going to be events that are so rare that it's going to be extremely difficult to know whether they're related to the vaccine or not. I mean, that's the case in clinical trials, even, you know, once you've got tens of thousands of patients. But then once you start rolling out a vaccine to hundreds of thousands of patients, you know you're going to see rare things happen because rare things, rare things do, happen. <laughs> do happen. Yeah, particularly when, you know, the number of people you're talking about is in the hundreds of thousands or millions. Um, trying to establish whether that is related to the vaccine or not is going to be very difficult. Um, I hope that 
behind the scenes whilst this emergency rollout is being planned, there's also uh, some rigorous uh, surveillance mechanisms that are going to have, you know, controls uh, involved to see, uh, you know, whether things that end up happening to people after they've been vaccinated could plausibly be related to the vaccine or not. Um, And then the other thing, as you say, Dame, is we know that uh, all vaccines will have some side effects, even if it's just that it's sore, getting the vaccine, you know, and we know that we, we warn everyone after you get the jab, your arm might be a bit a bit sore, it might be a bit red and swollen, you might have a dead arm. And a lot of people after a lot of, you know, our routine vaccines can feel a bit flu-like afterwards. And we know that's certainly the case for um, some of the new COVID vaccines. I think they are, they're quite reactogenic, so they can, you know, they can make you feel a bit fluy for a couple of days. But we accept that those um, side effects or, or, you know, risks are outweighed by the benefits of the vaccination. Um, And, you know, that I suppose that's to be determined if we, uh, you know, see any uh, similar rare events anyway. So so Guillain-Barre syndrome is just associated with vaccines full stop. We know that it, 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 you know, it can very rarely occur as a side effect um, of of those. But, you know, it's so rare that in almost all instances, the vaccine benefit outweighs that extraordinarily small risk. And in the same case, we always have to uh, tell everyone that there's a risk of anaphylaxis for vaccines. You know, I think it's about one in a million doses, but that's a, that's a real risk. And anaphylaxis is dangerous when it occurs, but we accept that the the uh, benefit of the vaccine outweighs, outweighs that small risk. And actually, it's interesting because millions of people are going to be vaccinated. So it is likely that risk will occur. And in, in the UK, we're about to, I think, going to try and vaccinate 800,000 people in the first wave. Now, in 800,000 people, some interesting and rare things are going to happen, vaccine or not. And that's going to be the problem by, for how, I suppose, the medical community and the media play this, because undoubtedly in the first week even after the vaccine is given out, someone may have something happen to them that would have happened anyway. But because it's temporally related to the vaccine, um, it, it all sorts of alarm bells might start kind of flashing up. Yeah, and it's interesting because there are pro- there are actually some parallels to draw with with COVID itself. I think in this instance, so not it's not often that uh, well, it's a once in a lifetime thing that tens of millions of people all become infected with a virus. You know, within a within a, the space of just a few months, and some extraordinarily rare. Um, uh, you know, side effects of an infection suddenly pop up quite enough times that they make it into a medical journal and people say, oh, look, this uh, this virus is associated with this side effect, which actually, you know, in real terms is probably a very, very low risk on per infection basis. But just because millions of people are getting it all at once, it suddenly gets reported. And and like you say, there might be other instances that are temporarily related that, that actually may not have been related at all. And it's very difficult to know what was you know, whether these things were related to the virus, whether they're related to, to other things that have happened. So I think there's some parallels to draw between the two. And I think it's going to be important that, like you say, there's a good sense of perspective is is kept, I think, by the science community and the media in, in trying to look at this objectively. And I think it behooves us as scientists to put processes in place to be able to study it prospectively i think it will be a bit of a disaster if we're ending if we end up chasing our tails and trying to um, establish that kind of thing if we've we've not foreseen it and uh, trying to put you know robust surveillance mechanisms in place first so final question ali so we've talked about just kind of 
the, the immunizations in, in general. What about specifically for, for children? When are we going to start uh, vaccinating children specifically over what time scale? And, and, and will there be anything about that that's different from adults? That is a really good question. Um, so I think one of the things we first have to realise is that um, there have been no children enrolled in any of the COVID vaccine trials, to my knowledge so far, except the the Oxford uh, trial in which there were children in the phase two study, um, children aged five to 12, for which we don't have the results yet. Um, and I believe that Moderna have just said that they're going to start uh, vaccinating children aged 12 plus in their study as well. So we, we don't have any data on efficacy or safety in children. Now, we don't have any reason to believe that it wouldn't be effective, particularly if the vaccines so far look like they're very effective in the elderly people. We know that um, children um, can will you know produce effective immune responses, but there's obviously different considerations in children because their immune system is different and it's maturing and um, it responds in different ways. There might be different side effect profiles uh, and different considerations for some of the different vaccine technologies in kids. So I think it's going to be really important to see that data. And that's particularly because um, children are not a priority for receiving the vaccine. And that's primarily because their risk of you know, severe disease is so low um, in absolute terms and especially relative to the other at-risk groups. So, um, for example, in the UK, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation have, um, you know, set out their priority list, which is essentially by age, really. Uh, and then uh, um, care home, uh, people who live in care homes first and the people who work with them, because obviously they're a bit of a, um, you know, an, an unwitting threat to the um, care home residents and then people over aged 80 healthcare workers um, and then it basically descends in age and there are, and in addition some groups with um, comorbidities who might be higher risk but kids aren't even on the list so far kids are sort of in the etc etc uh, <laughs> statement at the end um, and it's and it's for two reasons one is again the low risk but then the other thing is that um, unlike uh, flu kids are not the primary vectors of the infection either so in terms of interrupting transmission um, kids do transmit and you know eventually if we want to you know maybe even come close to eliminating the infection we'll, we'll almost certainly need to immunize children to achieve that but um, they're not the most important factor, uh, unlike they are for other conditions where we do prioritise immunising kids. So, you know, for like the, the nasal flu uh, vaccine, we like to get that into kids because they're important in, in the transmission chain. Um, so two issues. I mean, one, we don't have the data. And then the other one is that they're, they're, they're low down the list. So we've got time to wait, I think, for the clinical trial data to come out, so hopefully before we get round to a stage where we'll be looking at uh, wanting to, to uh, immunise children. Well, is it a possibility that we just won't immunise children if the first, if we go through all the high risk groups and get down to younger adults and get to the stage where the the, the transmission is is so reduced, it, it, it the, the benefits of kind of including children just aren't worth it. I guess that is theoretically possible um if we did vaccinate enough of the population, it might you know it might become a vaccine that you get you know what get offered once your age you know 40 or 50 or whatever if, if so many people at the high risk groups have already been vaccinated and enough virus has circulated that there uh you know is um sort of enough immunity in younger populations that 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 helps um suppress 
transmission as well. You know, if you've got a load of young adults and and children who are already immune because they've already had the virus, then obviously uh, there's much less impetus to carry out, you know, huge mass vaccination campaigns. I think probably at the moment people are working on the assumption that we'll we'll probably try to to get to everyone. But, you know, if that takes years and years, then we may be, you know, we may conceivably get to a stage where we say, well, hey, you know, there's no We've only got so much of the vaccine, you know. Let's just focus on giving it to those who who need it, because you know, kids are kids are not really significant risk, and there's enough immunity around around them to protect them. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you very much for that. I think that's a, a really useful kind of discussion recap of the different types of um, the, the vaccines coming out, kind of how they're deployed, what we should expect, and, and a bit about kids specifically. Uh, so, thank you very much for your time, Ali. Hope to speak to you soon. Thanks, Damien. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please tell your colleagues about us and you can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google and Amazon. Thank you.